I've been reflecting this week about salt and the summer and just all the cool stuff we've got to do this summer. August in particular, just how fun August has been getting to, I mean, it was less than a month ago getting to float the river, having the bonfire, the Christian sins, and so grateful that the Lord put it on their heart to offer their home to us, right? Um, doing the retreat, spending three days together, sharing every meal, a lot of us like sleeping out under the stars, getting to talk about how and why we should study God's word, right? It was, it was awesome. And, and getting to hear from Beth and her team last week about uh, the issue of sanctity of life and the issue of abortion in our culture and in our state and how we ought to be thinking about it as Christians and how we ought to act about it as well. And, and all this stuff, it, it's just reminded me what a great example, like, all of you guys set, as I see your friendships and, and just how you guys do life together. And I'm grateful to experience that myself. I'm grateful to see you guys doing life together through the good and the bad that life has to throw at us. Um, and so all that being said, August has been really busy, right? And, and we haven't, it's been three weeks since Jeff last took us through the book of Job. And we're jumping back in tonight. And we are really jumping right back in, right in the deep end. Uh, we're going to be covering seven chapters. And trust me, when I say that, I say it loosely because I'm not even going to attempt to read word for word everything in these seven chapters. But I just want to give us for the big picture. And I hope that as we've been studying Job and as we've been sending out uh, through our reminder app what chapters we're studying each week, that you guys can take the time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is to read ahead and to be familiar with what we're going to be talking about. But um, I'm hoping as well that as we've been studying Job over the last number of months that it's starting to get familiar, right? That if we're, as we're hearing Job and his friends argue back and forth and, um, and we're hearing and understanding the pain and the suffering that Job has gone through and like what he's been sitting in, that, that we get the situation, we get the picture here, right? Um, we've talked about a lot of I think really important things that I think the series has brought out. Uh, remembering and starting with right at the beginning, uh, in the first two chapters of Job, seeing that Job is described as God's most righteous servant. He's described as blameless and as shunning evil. Um, and yet we get to see behind the scenes into this divine encounter between God and Satan, where God sovereignly decides to throw Job's name in the ring, right? He decides to do something amazing with Job's life through a great tragedy. And we see that Satan then is allowed to attack Job, to take and to strip away all of his blessings that the Lord had given to him. And, and we see Job's faithful response. And then we've also walked with Job through his highs and lows. As, right, we've seen his loyalty to God. We've seen his perseverance. And yet we've also seen his hardening heart. We've seen his misguided understanding of what's happened to him and why it's happened and what he really needs to make it better, right? We've talked about things like punishment and discipline, um, salvation and hope and where we should put our hope. Why do bad things happen to people, right? What, what actually happens to the wicked, both in this life and after? And, and honestly, just where is God in the midst of all this pain, this suffering, this hardship in our broken world? Like, where is God? Whether that be in the past or the present or in the future, like... Those are some of the questions we've been talking about. If you haven't been with us, or if it's been three weeks, which that's all of you, since we last dove into Job. Um, and three weeks ago, we saw in chapters 22 through 24, one of the main points was that Job is pleading for God to end 
his temporary suffering, what he believes to be punishment from God, even though we know it's not. And it's not an unreasonable thing to ask God for. He's definitely suffering. He's definitely lost a lot. And, but what Jeff reminded us was that what Job ultimately needs and what is far better than an end to his temporary pain and suffering is eternal salvation, right? That the suffering, the brokenness, the sin that exists in this world, it's all a reminder to us that we need saving and that the salvation can't be found in the things of this world, even if God restored all that Job had before. And so in our chapters tonight, I want you guys to just get the big picture here. We're going to hear from his last and, in this case, most certainly least friend of his, Bildad. Uh, and we're going to hear Job respond. Job give his final two cents, his rebuke against his friends for all that they've said to condemn him. And then he kind of gives his final defense towards God, his last shot at proclaiming his innocence, right? Um, And it's the last thing we're going to hear from Job until the climax and the end of his story. He is looking at this like he's in court with God, and he's on his side, uh, he's been accused, and he's sitting here claiming, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty, and he believes God's on the other side, pointing at him, saying that he's guilty, And even though we know better that it's not God who condemned him, it's his friends. His three friends have been ganging up and condemning him. And it's not God who accuses him, but Satan was the one who accused Job. And and Job proved God right when he refused to curse the name of the Lord. And yet Job did not see behind the scenes. He does not know these things. And so today is his, in his mind, his last hurrah, his final argument. The last thing he has to say that he has to stand on. And so, um, I know our slides have not been working, but praise God for John. I do believe he got a slide made that I want to share with you guys when I'm done here. And we're going to go into small groups for a little bit. And it's going to have all the verses that I reference and all the verses that I'm going to read from Job and from our other passage. And I just want you guys to have that so you're not like so stressed out trying to speed note and write down everything I'm going to reference. It's a lot. It's chopped up. I'm not reading all the verses in the right order. I just want to give us the big picture and then let you guys have some time to discuss it. Um, So that slide will go up when you go to small groups. Just want to let you know now. And so please turn in your Bibles with me to Job chapter 25, if you have them. And we're just going to kind of look over chapter 25 and 26 here to start because it's pretty short. And I just want to paraphrase what's going on here. We're not going to spend most of our time because honestly, we see in chapter 25 that Bildad gives his argument. I believe he's the last of Job's friends to speak. And at best, his argument is kind of summed up as saying, God is mighty and sovereign and sitting in the throne in heaven, and Job, you're a dirty little worm. At best, that's, that's what he's saying. You're nothing compared to God. At worst, Bildad's really saying, yeah, what those guys said. He's just kind of beating the gong. He's not actually adding anything new to the conversation. They're saying, Job, you can't possibly be innocent of all this great sin we're accusing of because you're not God, and that's it. And Job in chapter 26, right, he's been so sarcastic. I kind of appreciate it, but probably not the best example. Job sarcastically kind of rebukes Bildad and, and reminds him that, like, Bildad and his friends, they've, they've used many words 
lofty arguments, high opinions, long uh, dialogues to condemn Job, but they've repeated really only a fraction of like the truth and the knowledge of who God is. Right? It's something they can't truly grasp, even though they act like they do. It's not to say that everything they said was utterly false. It wasn't. But they took just a few pieces of the puzzle, a few, pic- a few glimpses at the picture of who God really is, and they've gone, yep, we've got it figured out, and Job, you're a terrible sinner. And Job just simply reminds them that, one, they don't know it all. God's knowledge is infinitely more than theirs. And he rebukes them for using what little they know to condemn him rather to, than to comfort and encourage him. And so from there, we'll move on to chapters 27 and 28. Job, in these chapters, begins to summarize, specifically in chapter 27, begins to kind of summarize his defense and deals the final blow to his counselors, right, to his friends. Starting in 27, verse 2. Job says, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit that you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Right, deep down, like Job, he knew that there was not some great wickedness he had committed and hidden from God that he was being punished for. He knew that, but the issue with what I just read is that in order to uphold his own innocence, his own righteousness, he's ended up pointing the finger right back at God. He's saying, I know that I didn't do anything wrong here, but I don't know about God. I think he either made a mistake or something's going on, but I know I'm innocent. And honestly, he withholds justice from me. That's what Job's saying. He's, he's committed to not cursing God. He's not going to curse God. But he's also convinced himself that somehow God is the one who has some explaining to do. And he owes that to Job. And I want to be really clear before we move on, right? It's right that Job doesn't give in to his friends who have been condemning him and pressuring him, saying, you're a sinner. It's obvious. You've done something horrible. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening to you. But he's wrong for shifting the blame onto God, accusing God of injustice, right? It's not complicated. I don't, I don't think accusing God of sin is going to end well for anybody. Not you, not me, not Job, okay? He's no exception. The rest of that chapter, 27, Job clarifies um, his position on the fate of the wicked, something him and his friends had been tossing around. And he really, he ends on saying that he knows that it might appear like the wicked prosper, but ultimately he understands and believes that they're not going to escape God's wrath. He adds in verse 7, may the one who opposes him, Job adds this, suffer the fate of the wicked. And I'm not saying that that's a threat to his friends, but if it was, it kind of worked, because he pretty much shut them up the whole rest of the book. So he says that, he finishes chapter 27, and then we kind of pause. We get to chapter 28. It's an interesting chapter, a... um, I guess the best way to put it, it's a poem on wisdom. It seems a little out of place, a change of pace. And looking into it, like I know that this, this poem, some people believe, was inserted at a later date, either by the author or by other scholars, um, other scholars in Israel. But some people also maintain that this is Job's continued speech in response to his friends. So 
didn't see a ton of evidence or reason to go too far to one side or the other, but thought it was worth mentioning. Um, and in any case, it's here for a reason. It relates to what Job has been saying and his friends. Um, in cha chapter 28, the first 11 verses, we see Job kind of lay out how hard men work, how far they search. They search far and wide. They dig the deepest tunnels of the earth. They put in all this effort to try to find the earth's treasures, right? Rubies, gold, silver, whatever the treasure may be. They work so hard. But in verse 12 of chapter 28, Job, Job begins to say, where can, but where can wisdom be found? And where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. And then in chapter, uh, verse 20, he says, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. See, this chapter, this poem on wisdom, it reminds us like, Reminded me, many claims have been made by Job, his friends. Much knowledge has been shared. There's been many verbal slaps to the face received as they've battled. But they all must acknowledge and submit themselves to the reality that God alone is all-knowing. God alone is omniscient, in other words. That God alone defines and reveals all that they can even contemplate or consider is wisdom. God is the one on the throne. God is the one in charge. And while they might agree with this theoretically, Job and his friends, they still think they know what's going on in Job's situation. Yeah, 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 God knows everything. We get that. But Job must be a sinner. We got this down. I think this poem is really setting the stage for what God himself is about to demonstrate and remind them with force at the end of Job's story. So I will leave that for God to say as we, when we get to those later chapters. But now we turn our eyes to the final speech in our text that Job makes. This happens in chapters 29 through 31. And that means, if you can believe it or not, we've already gone through four chapters. We're already over halfway there, you guys. That, that was pretty fast. I'm just going to read some select verses from these three chapters that I believe best summarize Job's final speech. And I'll, I'll summarize each chapter a little bit, but, and remember, I will share all those references later because it's a little chopped up. Um, I don't want it to be taken out of context. I just want you guys to get the big picture and for us to not be here for three hours, okay? So bear with me. I am starting in Job chapter 29, verse 1. Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. When his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, 
when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like the one who comforts mourners. And really, that's chapter 9. He is reminiscing about all of the blessings of abundance that he had in his life, the honor and the integrity and the position that he had because of God's favor. And then we continue in chapter 30. He says, But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I looked for light, then came darkness. Chapter 30 shows Job lamenting, despair, and sorrow for all that he has lost, all that was taken from him. And then, finally, chapter 31, starting in verse 3. Job says, Is it not ruin for the wicked? Disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? For if I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained, if I have regarded the sun and its radiance or the moon moving in its splendor, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have concealed my sin as people do by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all of its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or have broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Chapter 31 is the final testimony of his innocence that Job gives. So we see those three stages of Job's final speech, right? The honor and abundance that he had in his life before. In months past, it says, right? Which is an interesting anecdote that it's likely been months since he lost all that he lost. Months that he's been in physical pain and suffering. And then in, in chapter 30, we see that he laments the destruction of all he had. He's not just reminiscing how great the old times were, but he's devastated that he's lost it all. And he's convinced that God is against him. God is attacking him. And then in chapter 31, that third stage, he summarizes his righteousness, right? saying, 
I don't deserve this. He lists all the things that he knows he's not guilty of and even goes so far as to say, look, if I'm lying, I accept my punishment. Let God come and show me what I've done to deserve this judgment. Job's willing to bet it all, his own life, that he's innocent. And then we read, now the words of Job are ended. And from all this, all that I've studied and read in these seven chapters, all that I just read to you guys, which is like maybe 10% of that, I just want to answer one question for us tonight, which is, like, why are these six chapters, why are they Job's longest and final plea? Why did he save all of these words, the longest passage that he speaks, six straight chapters? And why is this the last thing he said? Like, what is the main point of what Job has just laid out? And the answer I would offer to you guys is that the main point of what Job is saying here is that he wants to be justified. He's so confident, in fact, that his innocence is enough that he's willing to justify himself even at God's expense. Job has concluded two things, that his suffering is unjust, and he knows that God is the one who allows it because God is the one sitting in the throne in heaven. And so therefore, God himself must be guilty of withholding justice. God must be unjust. Right? While we know that he's not being judged for sin in his life, um, Job didn't believe that. He believed that God was against him, punishing him even. And I believe that in all of this, he's forgotten why God had mercy on him, why he had such abundance in the first place, right? It was his faith, right? It was his faith in God. That's it. It was his faith that led to his obedience, uh, the abundance that he had, his trust in God, and his contentment with life is because ultimately his faith wasn't in those things, it was in God. But right now what I read tells me that rather than have faith in God, even in his deepest suffering, Job is putting his faith in believing that he knows better than God, that God must have made a mistake. And so knowing all of this, having laid that out, I kind of want to take this as an opportunity to talk to you guys about justification. What can we learn from Job's story and Job's position here? What does it mean to be justified? Is it right or wrong? Like, what is Job going for here? Is that good or bad that he wants to be justified? And then what does that mean for us? I want to start by just defining it a bit for us because it might be a big word we've heard in church, justification, whoa, but the simple truth of it is to justify something is to declare it righteous, right? It's not more complicated than that. To say that someone is justified in, in an action is to say that they had a good and proper reason for doing it, right? They had a righteous motivation. Someone who is just does what is right, right? You guys get it. It's simple. Justification, specifically, it's not the process that makes you holier. That would be sanctification. Justification is the once and for all declaration that someone is seen and treated as righteous, as holy. Biblical justification, it always has to do with humanity's standing with God, the creator and the holder of all moral holiness. Right? It's the question of, does God see Job as a little tiny ant that he's waiting to squish with his big boot? Or does God see Job as his righteous servant? That's the question pinballing around in his mind because Job's not so sure anymore. After all he's gone through, he's losing faith that God really sees him and loves him. 
and he knows that he hasn't given in to wicked sin that he's hidden from God, and so he wants God to confirm that he's free of guilt. He wants God to reverse the curse, so to speak. God wants, or Job wants God to cease from the assumed punishment that he's been receiving. He loves God. He wants to be in right relationship with God, to be seen rightly um, as righteous by God. And he's recognized already in the book of Job that he's not perfect, that he recognizes the world is sinful and broken. He's not trying to pull the perfection card. And I, I don't think that the problem is what Job wants. He wants to be justified. There's nothing wrong with that. But how he's trying to get it, therein lies the problem. Because Job is seeking total justification on the basis of his own righteousness, his own works, right? This book will, in chapter 32, that's next week, describe Job as righteous in his own eyes, right? In other words, arrogant. And the problem with this is, who can actually be justified before a perfect, holy God on the basis of their own works and righteousness? Nobody can. None of us. Not Job. Not me, not you. It's like I want to say to Job, like, dude, you're right that all of this calamity and all of the pain you've gone through in your life, it's not a result of judgment on your sin. But dude, you're putting all your eggs in the wrong basket here. Seriously. In Job 31.6, Job said, let God weigh me in honest scales and then he will know that I am blameless. It's like, dude... Do you, do you really want to suggest that God's justice is rigged? I don't know. The creator and sustainer of everything that exists isn't being fair to you? Like, do you really want to compare your holiness to God's and see who's left standing? That's not a ring I want to get into. I know I wouldn't want, I wouldn't even comprehend being able to do that because even the smallest conceivable blemish we can imagine, right, renders us filthy evil, unworthy of being in God's perfect presence. No, no person can, by their own merit, be equally righteous with God. It's simple. We live in fallen, sinful world and fallen, sinful bodies. That is the problem. And Job will receive correction in due time for his um, wrong way of thinking. But I just want this right now to be a reminder to us, right, of what justification isn't. I want to talk about what it is, but just it's just as important that we talk about what it is not. Because even the best of us, even Job, who is described as the most blameless and righteous servant God had, right? That's the important part. Like, he was the best there was, but even him, was, even he was hopeless. And we are hopeless if we put our hope in being justified according to our works. Nobody can earn salvation. Nobody can earn justification. In studying and preparing for uh, all of this, I was reminded a lot. I reminded myself of me a lot, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I just remember being 18. That was now eight years ago. Wow, yikes, I said that out loud. Um, and I remember being like, I felt like trouble was following me around. Everywhere I get, I was always getting into trouble, and it might be more accurate to say that there was just consequences for my very stupid decisions, but it seems a little nicer to say trouble followed me around. That was how I saw it. And my first reaction, and I think many of us would understand, our first reaction, I'll just do more good things. If I do more righteous things, 
uh, I kind of thought maybe I could fool God, or maybe not God, but at least fool my parents, at least fool the people around me into thinking, okay, we can trust him. He's not a terrible person. Uh, until, and I could escape the consequences for a little while until I got my freedom back, my real freedom. Then I could go do whatever I wanted. And I had it all figured out. Um, I had, I was justified in my own eyes, right? I was like, as long as I'm doing enough good things to tell myself I'm on the right path, then that's enough. And it literally wasn't until it all came crashing down. I lost the relationship. I idolized so much and the woman I'd been dating. I lost all the relationship and trust with my family and the people who loved me and they could barely look at me. And honestly, I thank God for this because that was the realization that I couldn't make myself happy. I didn't have it all figured out. I was in over my head. I was deeply, deeply sinful and lost. That was a realization I came to. And that is exactly what opened my eyes to God's grace. I couldn't possibly, I could be justified in my eyes all I wanted, but that didn't mean anything for, for eternity. And I believe that for all of us who have come to faith in Christ, that we have to understand this before we even desire to come to faith in Christ. We have to understand we can't be justified by something else. Right? And so that's mentioning Christ, mentioning, mentioning the name of Jesus. This is where the gospel comes in. Because if works-based righteousness can't equal justification, then what can and what God has revealed to us, and what I want you guys to understand and rejoice with me with, rejoice with me in tonight, is that true justification comes through faith and faith alone. You guys, I love gotquestions.org. It's an amazing website. Christian's shaking his head, or nodding his head. <laughs> Christian's nodding his head. They have amazing biblical answers to millions of questions you could possibly have about Christianity, about the Bible. Their answer when it comes to what is justification, they say, justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. The root idea in justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous, is now viewed as being righteous because in Christ he has come into a righteous relationship with God. And we might forget we're talking about Job here. Job didn't know Jesus Christ. Job didn't have the gospel. Job didn't even have the scriptures. Job didn't even have the law of Moses. He had nothing. But I would extend to you, friends, like faith is always what God has desired. It's not like he flipped a switch at some point and decided, you know what? This whole law thing isn't working out. I think I want them to just have faith instead. You know? That's not how God works. And so when we're thinking of Job, I want us to also think about Abraham, who was most likely Job's contemporary, right? They lived at the same time. They may have been neighbors by a few countries. I don't know. But when we think of Abraham, I want to look at a passage in the book of Romans that speaks of Abraham. And the Apostle Paul, this is in Romans chapter 4. You guys can turn there with me. But Paul had this to say to the church in Rome when he wrote in Romans chapter 4 starting in verses 1 through 5. Paul wrote, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, well, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture actually say? 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. When it comes to being justified, when it comes to being seen by God as righteous, for Abraham it was faith. According to God's grace, Abraham had to have faith. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that if it's good enough for Abraham, it was good enough for Job. What did God desire? He desired faith. We've seen examples of his faithfulness, Job's faithfulness, but we're seeing today just how far he's gone astray in his thinking. That he's put his faith and his hope for justification, not in his faith in God, but in his own innocence. Even if that renders God the one who's unjust. And I want to take it one step further as I wrap up my stuff so we can do small groups. Because guys, it's quite simple. If it was good enough for Abraham and good enough for Job, it's good enough for you and me. It's good enough. In Romans chapter 4, if you look down to verse 20, this is how Paul concludes chapter 4. Yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. That's it, guys, for all of us. Justification comes through faith and faith alone. That final verse is vital because it's the reason that justification is righteous and fair. Because if we all stand guilty and God is the perfect judge, there's no option but to punish the guilty, right? We understand that as humans, that if a judge had a guilty, convicted, confessed murderer who was happy to murder and he said he's going to do it again, and the judge goes, shoot, I think I'm going to have mercy today. Go back onto the streets. Don't forget your knife collection. Like, that would be insane. It would be insane. The judge would be thrown in prison. That's corruption at its deepest, right? That's a, the worst judge. No one wants that judge. But the reason that our justification, even though that's us, we're the sinners, is because that punishment didn't disappear. He didn't shoot it into the ground. He didn't cast it off into space. It was fully paid for by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's why we needed a Savior. You guys see that now? I hope you guys see that. It gets even better. Paul continues, starting Romans chapter 5, in verses 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Oh, man. I wish that Job had had that letter. It might be too late for me to share Romans chapter 5, 1, one through 4 with Job, but I pray that you guys would receive it. And understand it for yourselves. That even in our suffering, we can give glory to God. And trust that he is doing a good thing. 
this doctrine, this belief of justification by faith, it has always been and will always be a vital foundation to the Christian faith. It's why we can all say with confidence, yes, yes, I'm being saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm spending eternity with God. And we're not being the least bit arrogant or prideful because it has absolutely nothing to do with how much we deserve it. In fact, the opposite is true. It has everything to do with the fact that we don't. So it separates Christianity from every other major world religion where the bottom line is you have to work your way to God. You have to be good enough. You have to achieve enough or be faithful enough. But biblical Christians believe that mankind is saved by one way. It is the result of God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It is by grace through faith.